Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Monday, the 23rd of November. Professor Adrian Esterman believes that as long as returned overseas travellers are quarantined in large city hotels, there will always be the risk that security and hotel staff will be infected with COVID-19 and then take it home to their families and then out into the community. We must give serious thought to setting up quarantine centres in remote and isolated areas, thus keeping the rest of Australia safe. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can listen to these podcasts on the HealthEd website, or you can download the HealthEd app and access many other learning resources as well. Professor Asterman, can you tell us about yourself? Oh, well, I was born in the UK. I started off with a honours degree in mathematics and statistics at the University of Bath. Um, part of that time I spent working in the Medical Research Institute in uh, London and really enjoyed it and um, decided to have a career in medical statistics. So I then did a master's degree at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Uh, got offered a research fellowship at the medical school in Aberdeen University. And while I was there, got headhunted by WHO and moved to their headquarters in Geneva as a statistical consultant. I spent five years in Geneva. They asked me then to become the statistician for the European office. So I moved to Copenhagen. I was there for two years, got absolutely sick of the cold weather and decided to migrate to Australia. So in 81, my wife and I came to Australia and I became the principal epidemiologist uh, for the uh, South Australian Department of Health. And I was there for many, many years. And then eventually I, after getting a PhD in epidemiology, I moved to Flinders University and finally the University of South Australia. Welcome to Australia. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but do you tell me, Adrian, you, you're in South Australia. Tell us about the situation in South Australia. How did it start? Why was the lockdown declared so quickly and what was the rationale behind that? Okay, so it all started with an, a lady in her 80s who um, went to the emergency department at one of our major hospitals called the La McEwen Hospital. A very alert doctor there had attested for COVID-19 and discovered she was positive. So she was the index case of this current outbreak. Um, further investigations found that she'd caught it from her daughter, who um, her daughter was working as a cleaner in one of our Medi hotels or quarantine hotels. So her daughter had uh, somehow uh, contracted the virus, passed it on to her mother, then passed it on to her husband. And they came from a very large extended migrant family um, and of the 20 I think it's 26 cases now mm -hmm. about 23 of them actually come from this extended family mm -hmm. so it was a massive spreader event 
super spreading event in this extended family. The reason why the South Australian government decided to go into lockdown is, is quite strange. What happened was that um, someone who was found to be positive said that they'd purchased a pizza from a pizza place in, in Woodville, which is a suburb of, North Adelaide, a suburb of Northern Adelaide. And they were very concerned that because this, and sorry, I should mention that someone else working in this pizza place was um, positive as well. They were a security guard at this many hotel. So they were really concerned that this guy had purchased a pizza and become infected just from purchasing the pizza. Mm. And, and if he could get infected by purchasing pizza, so, pizza, so could thousands of other people. So they decided that this was going to get too big and our contact tracers wouldn't be able to manage. So they decided to go into a, a short and, and heavy lockdown. Mm -hmm. But then it was found that this guy had lied. He didn't actually purchase a pizza. He'd actually worked in the pizza shop with this uh, security guard who we already knew was infected. Right. And so the risk of spread was way, way lower than was originally thought. Which is very good news. And I'm really excited for you all. But how did that particular index case, any idea behind how that protocol or that security and safety chain was broken? Well, there is talk of the cleaner touching an infected service, so that's fomites. Um, it's not 100% clear how she became infected. There is scuttlebutt on, on Twitter about the fact that the cleaner wasn't told which rooms were held by people in quarantine and which weren't. But again, this is all sort of gossip and we don't know for sure is the answer. Now, that brings to two now the um, leakage of COVID-19 from return travellers in hotels into our communities. Do you have any comment to make about these sorts of things? It's actually far more than two. There have been several in, in several states, although they've not been well publicised. And so this brings into the whole question, can we make these medi hotels or quarantine hotels 100% safe? And the answer is no, we cannot. It's impossible. This is a highly contagious virus. Um, no matter what you do, there will be leakages. So you've got one of two choices. Either you can say, well, we'll live with that and we'll try and get protocols in place so that we can stop any clusters that come from leakages. Mm -hmm. Or we can be much more sensible and say, for heaven's sake, why are we quarantining people in the middle of cities? Mm -hmm. Which is probably the approach I would take. We have, uh, I don't know whether you know, but um, last month there was a report put out by a previous um, uh, director of the, S of the Commonwealth Department of Health and the report recommended to, and it was all about, sorry, hotel quarantines, and the report recommended to the federal government that we seriously consider how we handle returning people. Mm -hmm. And we should have a national approach and potentially a national quarantine centre. They even recommended that they look at things like... Um, there's, there's a, an RAAF base called a, a Yermouth, which is up near, um, which is in Western Australia, near Port Hedland. They gave that as an example of what could be used. They mentioned the Howard Springs um, Quarantine Centre up in Northern Territory. And they pointed out that we have these immigration detention facilities like Christmas Island that could be used. So a report going to government is now recommending this. Um, I actually think it's probably the right way to go. But if you look at it, I can understand that keeping people employed and the hotels utilised uh, would be very strong in the minds of those who set these sorts of things up versus community safety. So how are we going to make that argument or see through this? Again, it's going to be dollars in lives. 
Well, look, you know, yes, um, keeping these things in the middle of cities keeps hotels open, keeps people employed. But you go into lockdown and it's costing hundreds, if not thousands of, of people's jobs. Mm. It's costing millions of dollars. I think it's a no-brainer which one is which one is more cost-effective. I, I agree with you completely. It's just that for a long time, in pretty much every decision we've taken, uh, it's always been about money, jobs, and lives. But I'm very shocked to hear that there have actually been more than two cases of breaches of these sorts of protocols, and we don't hear about it. So, you know, that's correct. So uh, I can't give you the exact details, but it's been th three or four states now where there have been breaches. Can you tell me a little bit more about our, if you like, uh, alternatives? You mentioned Christmas Island and detention centres. I believe there's somewhere in Northern Territories where they were looking at putting people in. Um, I guess uh, the initial uh, comment about Christmas Island was that they really felt they were being demeaned somehow. What do you make of that? Oh, look, I think this is very silly. This idea of isolating people uh, who are potentially infected is not new. It's been around for hundreds of years, if not thousands of years. I mean, in the old days, we used plague ships to keep people away from populations. Uh, we've used things like Rottnest Island. So this idea of putting people, oh, leper colonies, mm. this idea of putting infected people away from everyone else is very old, very traditional, absolutely Epi 101. So I think it makes a lot of sense. Most of these places like oh, Woomera would be a good example. They've got great infrastructure in terms of housing, uh, commercial kitchens. Uh, they could be manned by, for example, the Australian Defence Force in terms of security, in terms of um, cleaning, catering. So there's absolutely no reason why we can't use them. It's just a matter of the government getting sat together. And I suspect, um, Adrian, that the people who work there themselves will need to be quarantined before they come back to the community. Is that right? Absolutely. The thing is that at the moment, we've got people like cleaners and security guards working in these quarantine hotels who get infected, then take a, a public transport home to their family and infect their family. If they were in remote locations, they would be living in those remote locations. So they would be quarantined as well. So absolutely. We haven't seen the advent nor the widespread use of rapid testing kits. Let's just assume that they arrive, they're cheap and they're sensitive and they are accurate, um, would they make any difference in the way we manage these sorts of quarantine? Well, the big trouble is they're not accurate. Mm. Uh, the, the ones that we have at the moment have far too many false negatives, uh, which, makes, which means that there are some uses for them as a sort of second check. So for example, I can see them useful at airports or, or border crossings, where you can do a, an immediate test and get the results back in minutes. But we have to realise that they are no substitute for a reverse transcriptase PCR test. Okay, so there's no point testing them before they go home because we're going to label them as negative and they go home and infect their families. Potentially, yes. So I wouldn't be using the um, antigen tests in, in that situation. I'd be using a PCR test. How much support are you getting, or not you, but how much support is the particular strategy of isolating both um, the return travellers and their carers uh, out in areas that are easy to keep isolated? Well, it's very difficult to say, but I mean, I, I put this out in the uh, social media uh, and, and a lot of epidemiologists are agreeing that it's about time we looked at this. So mm. I think there is, a, there is a, 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 some support um, I'm not sure why the government isn't taking this more seriously. 
especially when you think that um, two things is that we're looking forward to a uh, our own citizens returning but also students and lots of people wanting to come to Australia to either live or work and being kept away uh, together with the investment they might bring. Exactly I'm absolutely 100% sure students will be quite happy to uh, be quarantined in a remote location I can't see that being an issue for them but we every Australian citizen has the right to come back to Australia but all the people resident here in Australia at the moment have also got the right not to be infected. Correct. So, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a balance there. I hear what you're saying very loudly, and I must say that deep down, it just makes so much sense, I agree. Yes, uh, uh, you know, the first rule of, of public health is to protect the public, and, and the rights of the public not to be infected takes precedence over human rights or all other things. So, uh, you know, I think the government really, really has to take this seriously. Now, just changing our topic a little bit and talking to a man who loves numbers, tell me what's happening in the Northern Hemisphere, Adrian, and where do you think it's going to end? And what's happening in Sweden, the model country that everybody's looking at? Well, even before its current new wave of infections, uh, Sweden had several times the number of deaths per capita than its surrounding uh, Scandinavian countries and its economy had got just as big a hit so that's despite the fact that they were going uh, for herd immunity had very few restrictions on people everyone was championing it as the way to go and now the Swedish government have now had to put restrictions in place not as severe as in some other countries but nonetheless they've had to introduce lockdowns so it's been a bit of a failure is the answer mm -hmm. the, many of the other countries are, are in terrible strife most of Europe have now got higher case, daily case numbers than they had in the first wave. And what about the place you were born? UK is in terrible strife. Um, it's, it's in different versions of lockdown just about all over the country, especially London. Um, they've made an absolute botch up of, of the response to the COVID-19. Mm. They, acted, they acted way too late. They didn't have their testing in place and probably still don't have enough testing in place. Um, they didn't close their borders. So everything Australia did, they didn't do. And now they're reaping the benefit of that. Again, looking at your mathematical mind, Adrian, um, in America, how are those big numbers going to get turned around? Uh, by Joe Biden becoming president and getting rid of Donald Trump, basically. Do you think, so, he, do you think he'll be able to somehow overcome the conspiracy theories and the polarizing stances on masks and various treatment that um, uh, President Trump has popularized. He's going to struggle. I think something like 60% of the American public at the moment don't want to be vaccinated, which is horrendous. You've got all these people who don't even believe the vaccine, the, the virus is true. There was reports in today's papers about people lying, dying in hospital beds in America and saying the virus isn't real. This can't be happening. You know, so I'm not, oh. sure, how you can get, I'm not sure how you can get around that. I, I sometimes wonder what sort of um, hallucinogenic drugs being pumped into the water supplies there. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, Joe Biden's already said he will consider lockdowns. He doesn't want a total lockdown across the states. But mm. I wouldn't be at all surprised if they did uh, hotspot lockdowns. Now, of course, uh, again, not being, if you like, um, a virologist, but we've got several vaccines along, coming along, and they're all touting very high levels of uh, immune responses. Working mathematical models, if they were, say, 50% effective, 
What, what difference would that make to a country like, first of all, America or the UK, and then to Australia? Well, if you take America, if they're 50%, and, and the thing you have to understand is when they say that they're 50% effective, they're talking about efficacy, not effectiveness for a start. And secondly, most of these trials for their outcome measures are looking at symptomatic cases. Mm. Okay, so when they say they're 90 four percent or nine percent effective mm. that means they can prevent symptomatic cases by that amount that doesn't mean they can prevent people from being infected and people can be infected without symptoms and pass it on so that's the first thing and in fact the ceo of biontech has said that their vaccine which is the pfizer vaccine will prevent 50 percent of infections so it depends whether you want to prevent infections or want to prevent symptomatic cases and it's not clear for every one of the, the vaccines which they're talking about. So it's all very muddled. That's the first thing. But just suppose mm. that it could, present, it could prevent 90% of infections, but only 50% of the American population are willing to be vaccinated. Right. So now you've got only 45% effective. Mm. And that's nowhere near enough to get herd immunity. So the vaccine strategy itself won't necessarily help the USA. I think in most other countries in Europe and Australia, we have much, much higher rates of, of people willing to be vaccinated. In Australia, it's more likely to be way over 80%. And if we take uh, one of those vaccines like the Pfizer one or Moderna, mm. uh, which is that effective, I think we will hit, or if not, get very close to herd immunity, which is what we're looking for. Adrian, in that case, do you see in a kind of a way, a world that is going to be divided now in terms of travel in, in a year or two to come, uh, where if, say, in America, you just cannot be sure uh, that this COVID-19's back can be broken versus the rest of the world, where maybe we can make some headway. What do you see happening in the world? I think what will eventually happen is that as well as your normal uh, passport, you'll have a, a COVID-19 or health passport, which will say, when were you last tested? What were the results? Exactly where do you come from? Where have you visited? And you'll have to produce that at airports. You'll probably have um, an antigen test before you get on the plane. You get an antigen test when you get off the plane. You have your health passport. And that will certify that you are very low risk. So mm. I think that's where the future lies. And you did say that uh, even with the uh, efficacy in preventing uh, transmissions, uh, and, and let's say it's 50% effective. So even if I'm Im immunized and let's say I want to travel to America, how safe would that make me? I think a lot would depend on your age, whether you have any underlying health conditions. I, I'm, I'm 72 now and I have an impaired immune system. Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't dream of traveling overseas at the moment, not, and probably never again. Right. Wow. Explain the last bit to me. It's a very important statement. Because it's a huge risk. I mean, for, for someone who's fit and healthy, the risk, the risk is, is not huge. And, and especially if you're vaccinated, it wouldn't be an issue. But if you, even if you're vaccinated, it doesn't guarantee you will not get a severe infection. Mm. It ameliorates against you getting the severe infection. Uh, and in some of the trials, everyone who's had a severe infection was in the placebo group. But there is no guarantee that the vaccine will produce enough immunity for someone with an impaired immune system. 
So it's a matter of what risk you're willing to accept. I'm not sure if you always think like this, but I really appreciate that thought, uh, Adrian, because we have to counsel our patients who want to travel. And you can imagine that some of them would be more uh, determined to want to travel. And yes, they will be older. Yes, they will have diabetes. What do you think as GPs we should be telling them? I, I think it's a discussion with the patient about why they need to travel. Mm -hmm. If, for example, they've had a, a new grandchild in the UK, for example, mm -hmm. they're desperate to see them, um, then the, the GP would have to counsel them and say, look, you've got diabetes. Okay, your immune system's not crash shot. Um, we can give you a vaccine and that will really reduce the chance of you having a severe infection. It won't be 100%, but it'll be a very good protection for you. And then the decision is up to you as to whether you want to risk it or not. So I, th I think that's all you can say. Yes, I must say, I really understand where you're coming from. I, my desire to travel overseas has just evaporated. <laughs> now, uh, again, here's another mathematical question for you. We've been through the phase three trials. The results are dripping in. We've had uh, vaccines given to tens of thousands of people. We've had two pauses on particular vaccines because of some concern, both likely neurological. And we're going to look at the possibility of very low or rare complications, but significant. Give, and this vaccine being given to tens, if not hundreds of millions of people. Uh, what do you think of things like that? Well, vaccines as well as drugs, um, basically have, these days are mandatory phase four or pharmacovigilance trials. So as, as GPs are well aware, when uh, uh, an adverse event is reported to them, they have to report it further up the chain. Eventually that goes into a national database of adverse events and finally into an international database of adverse events. So as more and more people get vaccinated, as reports of adverse events come in, this is all collated. And if there are any nasty adverse events, then the, the vaccines will be halted and they'll be examined. So we have this surveillance system in place that, that keeps everyone safe, basically. Adrian, how much does this COVID-19 cost Australia in terms of not just economy, but testing, immunizations, boosters, not people not coming in to invest in Australia because they can't come in? Do you, do you even think about what we might have cost us? No, I'm not an economist. <laughs> I wouldn't like to go into the, into those sorts of things. What I do know is there is, there, is there have been some positives coming out of this, despite the cost. So, for example, when the um, epidemic first hit Australia and the National Cabinet was formed and they laid down their roadmap, mm. um, we were, yeah, the, the strategy of the government at that stage was to suppress the um, epidemic enough that our health systems could cope. Mm -hmm. that, that was the whole idea. They were absolutely worried that we would overwhelm our health systems. And the modeling showed that. And then to everyone's surprise, including mine, we didn't just suppress it, we actually crushed it. Mm. And one of the reasons is that the incredible compliance of the Australian population to the regulations, it amazed everyone. If you can recall, when we tried to introduce an Australia card, it was pilloried and we couldn't get it through, mm. despite the fact that we're one of the few countries in the world that doesn't have a national identity number. So we weren't expecting this, and it turned out the Australian population were incredibly compliant and still are. 
So, so that, that's one positive, positive that's come out of this whole thing. More positives are that we now have got a pretty good idea what to do for future pandemics, and they're going to come. Mm. Um, we should really be having a, a, our own CDC, and I cannot understand why the government is so reluctant to do that. Uh, mm. And that would prepare us even better still for future pandemics. Um, we, we know that our stockpiles of PPE, um, mm. antibiotics, etc., weren't enough, and that's now being ramped up. Other things that have come out is that in many parts of Australia, there's now a greater sense of community. I live in a, um, a block of apartments, and we all help each other now. We go shopping for those who can't do it. Mm -hmm. Someone's put hand sanitizers on it, all the gates to the apartments. So this, it's almost like the blitz in the war. You know, there's this sort of community atmosphere that most often wasn't there before. So I think there have been, and so there's fewer road traffic accidents and things like that now because of the, you know, the, some of the lockdowns that are happening. So there have been some positives despite the huge cost. I must say that um, the Melbourne story must go down in history as an amazing, amazing success. What is it now? 16 days with uh, double donut figures. I think it's even longer than that, isn't it? I can't remember now. It's, it's I can't remember, but it's close, it's close to that anyway. It's Look, fantastic. You know, it's, it's, it's an amazing success story, but it's also an amazing stuff-up story. <laughs> the, because you've got to remember that they made amazing mistakes at the beginning. I mean, total stuff up. Mm. So it went from, it went from, you know, the security guards being infected, taking it home to extended migrant families who, part, who, had, who had unauthorized large family gatherings, which were breaking regulations. Uh, the, the Victorian Department of Health was not very good at communicating to these non-English speaking populations. Uh, Thousands of these migrant people refused to be tested and the, and the Victorian government did nothing about it. And it was stuff up after stuff yeah. up. Um, but then, then, to be fair, they got their act together and really did well. So, so yes, big, big tick for the, for the Victorian Department of Health and Daniel Andrews for, for doing incredibly well and, and producing amazing results now. But you have to remember they started in the first place. Well, one thing we also learned, Adrian, is what not to do with our aged care sector. That, yeah, and that was absolutely terrible. I mean, the whole, the whole structure and system of the aged care sector needs a total revamp. Mm -hmm. We can't have incredibly poorly paid people working as carers. And, and not only are they poorly paid, they're not well trained. Mm -hmm. It simply doesn't work. We should be taking much better care of our elderly people than that. Yes. And... and you know, as soon as these huge outbreaks in the aged care settings were discovered, they should have immediately transferred sick elderly people to hospital, and they didn't. So, so huge mistakes. They're all sorted now. We know what to do. But at the time, it was just a terrible situation. And the other big tick for us, I think, is the ramping up of the Victorian public health system. But full marks to New South Wales for their test, trace and isolate policy. Look, I totally agree with you, but you know, you, you've got to say full marks for them ramping it up, but why wasn't it good in the first place? Right. <laughs> you know, right. They, have, they have disinvested in their health for <laughs> years. <laughs> Everything in the past has just come back to bite us. <laughs> <laughs> so the South, is, I mean, I, 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 when I came to Australia in 81, <laughs> I, I worked in the um, Department of Public Health in our SA, SA Health. 
And we had a brilliant public health system. We had fantastic contact tracing teams. Mm. They did amazing work during the HIV out epidemic, if you can recall. Mm. Uh, and although I haven't worked there for many years now, they have an amazing team of people. I mean, uh, the chief public health officer, uh, Professor Nicholas Bury, I know extremely well. Um, I know the CEO extremely well. I know the person in charge of the contact tracing. That's Professor Katina Rodney, is one of my ex-PhD students. She's brilliant. Uh, so they've now got a fantastic bunch of people there. Mm. And you can understand how we've managed to do so well and are still doing well, even with the current outbreak. Two last issues that I want to bring up. Uh, the first is that we really don't have an app or something that really, really works, that works through Australia, that Australians are willing to use. The second has to do with messaging. And that uh, when different states have different messages on the use of masks and various things, it does affect how ordinary people think about such measures. What are your comments? Well, to start off with, the COVID safe application hasn't worked properly. And I mean, I'm not a techo, but, but my colleagues who, who, are, who do understand the technology say that these Bluetooth-based systems aren't particularly good. Mm. For, ex for example, what happens if there's a war between you and the next person? Mm. You know, all, the, all these sort of technical issues that come into it. Many countries now are using QR codes very successfully, and that's something we should seriously consider here we are, they are, they are being used in, in some states at the moment. I think they should be made universal. Mm -hmm. um, importantly, we do not have a national contact tracing database. Mm -hmm. Every state and territory does its own thing. So they use different software, they use different training of their contact tracers. And to me, it would make a lot of sense to have a national contact tracing center with hubs in each state and territory and then regional hubs into the communities from each state and territory. Mm. And then all information, including stuff from airlines and other ports of entry, would go yep. into this nation, national centre. That would make it very easy to track people travelling around Australia and coming in from overseas. Mm -hmm. Now, there was a report to government this month from our chief scientist, uh, which does not recommend that. Oh. It, actually, it actually recommends we simply have a, a data exchange system. And to me, that makes no sense whatsoever. So if we did have a, a CDC, which I think we desperately need, firstly, it could run the National Contact Tracing Centre. And secondly, it would give national advice on things like mask wearing. Mm. So we wouldn't have every state and territory given, giving different advice. That's a very important food for thought there, Adrian. Now, do you have any uh, points that I might have missed out on just starting off from the South Australian situation then looking out towards quarantine and all the issues that we've dealt with? No, I think we've covered just about everything. I mean, unless we change our quarantine system and arrangements, we're going to keep seeing these clusters occurring. And New South Wales have taken the suppression approach that says, look, we can't stop them. Therefore, we'll just have to learn how to deal with them. And up until a week ago, I'd have probably said, no, I'd much rather go through an elimination mm -hmm. strategy. Mm -hmm. Because if this outbreak in South Australia hadn't occurred, we would now have nearly three weeks of the whole of Australia not having a single community transmitted case, not one. Mm -hmm. And to that extent, we'd have eliminated COVID-19 from Australia. And then the only way it could come in would be through people coming in through the quarantine system. That would have been my preferred approach. But now I've started to realise 
that unless we change our quarantine system, we simply cannot stop these outbreaks. And when these outbreaks occur, we cannot guarantee they won't go widespread like in Victoria. Therefore, the key to me is to change our quarantine arrangements, and that should override everything else. Is there any way that uh, people who are supportive of this approach can have our voices heard? Well, I think um, the AMA could potentially uh, support this and write to the federal government and, and support the, um, the report that went in last month, the federal government. Um, I've forgotten the name of the lady who wrote it, but she was head of the Commonwealth Department of Health for many years. Sorry, uh, Halton, it's the Halton report, H-A-L-T-O-N. Horton report. Mm -hmm. So in that report, they are one of the recommendations is that do they do consider having the, these quarantine places in, in remote locations. So both the RSA, RACGP and AMA could support that. That might Good. help. Makes a lot of sense. Keep us safe and keep them safe and keep the workers safe as well. Absolutely. They've got families as well. Yes. Adrian, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you and thank you for giving me those uh, very helpful comments to think about. Not a problem. Lovely to speak to you, David. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.